and welcome back to Box Podcast, the weekly pseudo-academic roundtable of pop culture analysis with drinking and swearing. My name is Christopher Maverick, but you can call me Mav, and I am once again here with my co-host, Hannah and Wayne. How's it going, guys? Mav. Well, well it's going better for one of us than the other <laughs> in terms of the box office game. We have box office <laughs> results. Somehow, in the midst of all this craziness, there are enough theaters open that there are some movies out. And uh, there's a box office result that we could talk about, which is exciting for one person. <laughs> I mean, you know, like it's ambivalent because there's also excited a, about it. There's also a pandemic. I don't know. It, I just feel weird. I'm like, <laughs> I, I really just, you know, when The Good Place was on, I really felt a kinship with Chidi because his stomach was always hurting about like ethics anxiety. And I really felt that. Um <laughs> But I don't use almond milk, so I guess I don't get <laughs> negative points for that. Anyway, uh, besides that oblique reference, I was I was actually more... Ref- I know that I'm ahead because of Raya and The Last Dragon. But I was referring to the fact that like all of Wayne's movies are disappearing off the schedule this year. Yeah. Or, yeah. Getting, <laughs> or getting semi-released onto Disney+. Plus. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I didn't make anything off of coming to America, did I? We stopped you from picking that. Yeah, yeah, you'd pick that, Um, and then we said, no, 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 we knew, we knew at that time that that was not going to get a get a release. I I can remember. Okay, all right. No, Death on the Nile's getting pushed to 2022. Uh, Luca is being released solely to Disney Plus now. Black Mm -hmm. Widow and Cruella are getting the split Disney Plus theater release. Which might be okay. I mean, although can we, can we like, we now have a trailer for Cruella, and I know it's kind of old now, but can we just pause and ask ourselves, who is this movie for? (laughs) Again, you asked, yes, you asked that on the show where we did the draft. I don't know. I mean, I, I, it's a movie specifically for Emma Stone and Emma Stone alone because, like, she apparently, like, I'm sure it's happening because they want her to do something else. And there, and she was like, sure, I will star in Project X for you, but I want a little something, something. Since I was a little girl, I have always wanted to do a deep exploration of the psychological makeup of the arch villain Cruella DeVille. Please let me do this. And, the, and someone said, oh, okay. And sure. so they let her do a movie. Sure. <laughs> I don't know what's going on. <laughs> That's the only logic I have for it. I, I, can't, I can't imagine it's anything else. Um, yeah, Wayne's... Um, so, the, well, yeah, I'm, I'm boned. That's okay. <laughs> well, um, I mean, Hannah, you know, you're, you don't know. you're in the lead, though. You're in the lead. Uh, you have a comfortable lead right, yeah, lead right now. Yeah. 17 I mean, and a half million. That, I mean, like that. I mean, I, it's it's because the only other two movies that have been released are Chaos Walking and Nomadland. And Chaos Walking has been like pushed back from like two box office games ago uh, <laughs> when I picked it. And I knew that was a fool's errand this time. Um but I, I, I got think- a cool, cool 3.8. I'm just happy to be on the board, you know. <laughs> Wayne, I, I got all the Nomadland money, all twelve dollars of it. Uh, well, so where we're at right now, as we record, Hannah is seventeen point five five nine million. I'm at three point eight seven six million. Wayne is at one point one six million, and Katya is at zero. None of her movies have dropped. But she's gonna she's um, gonna be on the board in a really strong way once Godzilla versus Kong and Mortal Kombat yeah. come out. Yeah. Well, both of which are going. I mean, dual release though. Who knows? I mean, I'm actually. I'll say it because I'm not Hannah. I'm excited about the box office game this year because I'm kind of fascinated by how the math works out when you know when movies can be at home and at, you know, and in theaters. And, you know, I, I hope that they, um, they continue to happen that way, but be safe or something. Yeah. I'm, I'm looking forward to like, um, so as of, um, was it yesterday when they announced that black widow, for instance, black widow and Cruella were going dual release. I'm kind of looking forward to, um, seeing that um and i you know i i should be immune to covid by the time black widow comes out so i might even risk um you if, if amc magic vip tickets open up again i might like you know go and and a-list myself a ticket and sit somewhere far away from everybody and and enjoy black widow on a big screen that'll be fun yeah 
<laughs> you know, I'll be out watching on a big screen. We'll, we'll, we'll see how everybody things, else. We'll see how things are by then. Yeah, but, well. you know, so I'm, I'm excited to see how this goes. But yeah. congratulations for your early commanding leap. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, Wayne, what are we talking about today? This is because it's not the game, not the box office uh, game. We're okay, doing so. <laughs> yeah, so so there was an idea that I, I stumbled across a while back that's been bouncing around in my brain, and this episode is is much more about. Trying to understand this, I think I understand parts of it, but I certainly don't understand all of it. Um, and I, I just want to talk about it. I think there are applications to specifically comics because that, that's my world, my thing. There's application to all kinds of other things. I'm trying to work out in my brain how it might apply to comics. There's an idea called ergodic literature, E-R-G-O-D-I-C, or ergodic storytelling. Mm-hmm. And to repeat stuff from a blog, it, it's a term coined by Espen J. Arseth in a book called Cybertext, Perspectives on Ergodic Literature. And the definition is, and I'm quoting here, non-trivial effort is required to allow the reader to, to traverse the text. If ergodic literature is to make sense as a concept, there must also be non-ergodic literature where the effort to traverse the text is trivial with no extra nomadic response. Well, I, that's a word I don't think I've ever said out loud. <laughs> Responsibilities placed on the reader except, for example, eye movement and the periodic or arbitrary turning of pages. So I, we're going to talk more about what that means. Uh, I invited the guest on. This is actually the, the person who I first heard the term from on a, on a Facebook post. And I'm going to introduce him and then and I'll come back to what that post was so we can talk about that as just sort of a, a diving in place. My friend David White, who I've known for 30 years now, probably. Uh, hi, David. Welcome. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> hey, David. Yes. Hello. Hi. Hello. Thank I, you. This is interesting and fascinating. <laughs> I, I met David when he was at, uh, you were a grad student at Pitt at the time, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah it, it would have been fall of 90 when I started hanging out with the, the circle of people that, that I met you through. Uh, and and to be fair, you and I were never really part of the same inner circle. Like, I don't recall you and I ever going out and getting a pizza together or whatever. But we were at a lot of Friday night improvs, like every Friday night for two or three years. We were at a I've lot of the same Friday night parties. improv. I, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's it was a, a weekly thing that took place at the University of Pittsburgh for 20 years or so. Mm-hmm. Um, and um we were at a lot of the same parties. I saw a lot of your shows. David is a, a director and an actor, and I'm going to let him talk about himself some so he can tell us all the other things he does. But that, that's kind of our, <laughs> that's our background. Well, and I remember, wait, I should just point this out. I, I, I've always remembered one thing you said to me at a party one time, which is, David, <laughs> you're my favorite person that I don't really know. <laughs> <laughs> that may still and be true. <laughs> I, well, yeah, and I remember thinking the exact same thing. I was like, "There's Wayne." I, yeah. I like maybe someday we'll know one another. And, and yeah, thoroughly enjoyed your company anytime we were exactly, in the same room. Yes. But but we never really, for whatever reason, <laughs> just the world never pursued that. I never asked you out. I, right. <laughs> right. The one who got away. <laughs> this is it. Well, tonight's her first date. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, you're the one who introduced me to the term ergodic storytelling through just a, a random Facebook post. And you use yes. it in reference to the Netflix show, The OA. And I watched, ah. I watched that and thoroughly enjoyed it. And I'm going to put you on the spot and ask you, what did you mean by that specifically with that show? Just as a jumping off place. Uh, that's good. OK, so. Yeah, but I, I think the first question uh, to really ask, and I don't have an answer, is can we use the word ergodic? to describe something, another art form other than literature. Right. Let's just say we can. <laughs> so, yeah. well, and and um, I, I think that's part of what we're trying to determine here tonight. Like, what, right. what is it? Well, and, and I think I heard the word in reference to Twin Peaks season mm-hmm. three. When that was on, I think I was listening to a podcast or reading a blog or something that said that this was an ergodic television show. And the idea was that it is if a television show can be ergodic, it is because it is a show that is somehow dependent on extra effort that goes beyond the standard effort put into that particular kind of art. So um, so the OA, for instance, the reason I was thinking of it then probably was because it omitted what in other circumstances I think would be important information 
um, in favor of a more vague storytelling and uh, and a kind of storytelling that really depended on decoding the show itself. Uh, which is the same as as Twin Peaks. And and I think both of those shows kind of go beyond your normal like art film, like, for instance, a, a piece of surrealistic film or or something like that um, is it really has no narrative. Twin Peaks and OA have a narrative mm-hmm. um, there. There are a, it's a series of events. You know, one follows the other. It's fairly chronological. Um, but to be able to cull full meaning from those events requires more analysis and thought than you would otherwise put into a television show. Mm-hmm. And, and I almost thought about that, you know, I just got done watching WandaVision too, which I love. And, mm-hmm. but, we but WandaVision, show on that. <laughs> right. Well, but I would not qualify it as ergodic because ultimately you didn't have any questions. You, I had many you, questions. Well, <laughs> I, understand, I understand your point. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it. There were reasons behind it. It fit within, and and any kind of loose ends. We know we're going to get wrapped up in another thing, right? In in, in the next Marvel yeah. thing, whatever it is. Whereas uh, the OA and Twin Peaks, there's no document out there explaining what all of this means. Um, it is it's kind of dependent on what we, the viewer, collectively decide. And that's what I thought of ergodic. Now, ergodic okay. literature. Um, I'm sorry, I'll stop there and then you can you can continue. We can move on. Yeah, no, no, I, 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 I feel free to, to jump in. I mean, that that makes sense to me that that matches with what I'm understanding of it. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, in, in terms of literature, I mean, a couple of the things that they reference, like every article I, I read references the book. House of Leaves. Yes. And I, I remember reading that years ago when it came out. And yeah, it took more than non-trivial effort to, to read. Um, and <laughs> for sure. Yeah. Cause I mean, it was, you know, you, it's ostensibly a, a story of a haunted house and people getting lost in this haunted house and the structure of the book itself. And, and that's really an oversimplification. I, I'm just repeating the blog here, I guess. But that whole, I, the, the structure of the book mimics that whole getting lost in the house. Yes. Because you would go to a footnote and then within the footnote, there would be another footnote on another page, which would then run off that page and around the margins and lead you backwards to another page. So, <laughs> right. you know, and, and like, I'm doing this from, from memory. So, I, you know, that kind of thing. But like, you were kind of jumping all over that book to follow the narrative. And, and so there was sort of this metal level of, a physical, psychological getting lost in this physical book, the way the characters were getting lost in this physical house. Um, mm-hmm. Yes. And not understanding how it worked. And, but you know, still, you know, technically, there was one way to read that book. You know, I guess the, the other one that came up often was uh, the, the book Griffin and Sabine, which uh-huh. included notes between the characters, you talk between the pages and envelopes and all this extra information outside of the main narrative. Um, and yeah, you don't get that in movies or TV shows. I mean, that sort of thing just doesn't exist. You're still trapped. Well, following right. the narrative yeah. in time. I, I actually, I want to quibble with that. Um, Me too. And in the show itself, I mean, there's, well, there's this extraneous stuff that's added to it. Well, but, well, there's also, yeah, there, uh, well, I mean, to, to the TV thing, I, I, as you were talking um, about TV shows, the first thing that came to my mind was Lost and also Watchmen, which coincidentally had Damian Lindelof mm-hmm. um, involved. Mm-hmm. And what I was thinking about was not just like the questions that the shows ask you, but the supplemental material like um, Watchmen had, yeah. had designated you know bit on like like you could just watch watchmen you could read the comic uh you could read the supplemental materials which were like case files and ads and and you know just different documents from the world and you could make your way through them mm-hmm. in any order even if some of them were paired with episodes uh and and you know lost was you know very similar um and then like the just the way that like people mm-hmm. talked about it online jj abrams who was involved with lost later wrote i think a, a book that um has been mentioned as her god literature um well he co-wrote a book called s um which yes, does yes. have a lot of you know like documents and multiple narratives and it, it's you know the it, it it is like this thing make your way through but i i also um 
was thinking, and I think that you might have brought this up, Wayne, uh, in the blog post on boxpodcast.com, where you can follow us and read what we're talking about. <laughs> uh, you're welcome for that, Mav. Um, Thank you. Uh, but like, it, uh, you know, I think that we, we at least talked about collectively as hosts, Bandersnatch and some of the other choose your own adventure. I understand that that kind mm-hmm. of phrase is coined, mm-hmm. but like, you know, those, those shows where you make your way through and there are narrative choices that you make even if um, Bandersnatch, as we talked about in that episode we did on it, it did feel like at a certain point we were being controlled by the narrative more than we were making choices. Mm-hmm. Ah, yes. So, Yeah, very good. Yeah, so my, my pushback would be similar. So I think what's really happening is we're trying to force a binary choice on the concept more than is really possible. And what I mean by that is, you know, certainly there are some post-structuralist and being all schooly now um uh texts that like are designed such that the structure of the text is part of the experiment of of reading it as you said you know you're talking about um you're talking about books where you oh the 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 margins matter the footnotes matter this is always when i should say always this has been true um since the modernist era in poetry right like where even even since before yeah even before yeah yeah but like but well i'm i'm thinking um, I'm thinking Gertrude Stein, where mm. there is no literal meaning to her text whatsoever. It, it is only an exercise in enjoying the form and the structure like the like um, like tender buttons. There are po- there are poems in that that are absolute gibberish, like they're just mm-hmm. sounds of words that she enjoys hearing together. And you're looking to I mean, not even words. There are syllables that she enjoys hearing together in some points where you're just like literally trying to derive meaning out of the experience of engaging with the text mm-hmm. and in things like that, I will say that the first time I read it, I was like, this is weird. And then as I got deeper and deeper into the book, I did, you know, sort of come to enjoy it and engage with it in a way that, you know, was intellectually interesting, but then I'm a giant nerd. Right. right. But, <laughs> but like to take it in. So like, that's not one. I mean, I know that like our regular listeners, not just going to go and maybe some will, but most of our listeners aren't going to just go out and buy a copy of tender buttons really quick. Right. But I would argue that probably a, a large portion of our listeners have watched lost. Um, mm-hmm. I wasn't a lost right. man, but Legion, you know, these are texts that, which either one is a, are TV shows that involve a greater understanding of the meta narrative than, I mean, you don't have to, you can just sit down and watch lost and be like, well, that was a TV show and go on about your day. But I don't think that's how most people engaged with it. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's how most people engaged with Legion. And I would even argue that for what it's worth, that's not how most fan, most hardcore fans engage with something like the MCU or even with something like um like the Snyder Cut, right? The Snyder Cut that just came out um, last week as we record. Um, sure, there's a movie there, but the anybody who was really psyched for the Snyder Cut isn't just engaging with the storyline of Justice League. They could have done that four years ago. They're engaging with this meta narrative of the struggle that Zack Snyder went through and the war on the internet and all the crap that goes into it. So I think that like to enjoy it or not enjoy it either way, you cannot get away from the external supplementary real lifeness that like went into for better or worse, like the, you know, Joss, Joss Whedon is part of the story story of the Snyder Cut. For better or worse, um, the death of Zack Snyder's daughter is part of the story of the Snyder Cut. And anybody who's yeah. a fan of it of, of it knows that. Mm-hmm. Even well, and, you know, and, even if I'm not, you well, know. And and I mean that conversation on on David's page this week, you were talking about that, and and you brought up the the death of his daughter and whatnot. And I I was struck the music fan in me the use of two Nick Cave songs very early in the movie, one of which was yes. ri- written and written and and recorded while he was dealing with the death of one of his teenage sons so you know, there was that meta narrative that happened in my head of this is what happened with snyder's daughter just the themes of this movie the choice of this song you know all wove together to, to create a, a response that i want to say i mean i don't think that necessarily even makes it good i mean one of the things that i struggle as a pop culture scholar 
I struggle against colleagues sometimes where, well, this is, I mean, Hannah, you've talked about this many times, the, the false dichotomy between high and low art, right? Mm. Like, well, this is real literature. This is not right. And I don't, I'm not saying it's just, just because it's complex, better. Like, I'm, right. Yo, um, yeah. Absalom, Absalom sure, is sure. ergodic. One of my least favorite books in the world. I despise reading it. I only did because I had to <laughs> for my job, but, um, but I don't enjoy it. I will never teach it because I refuse to inflict that on someone. You know, yeah. um, but and I support but, you in that. I yeah, just want to say, yeah. <laughs> but but it, but it does qualify as ergodic, and I think that. Um, and I and I think that the same thing happens with with lots of texts. You know, particularly the ones that you know that we involve. You know getting into. I, I'm thinking just like you said, Twin Peaks is a key example of a television show or the film by by David Lynch. Um, uh, uh, Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive yes. is work. I love that movie, but like, <laughs> I cannot, I cannot recommend it to 99% of people because well, like, they won't be my friend anymore. <laughs> well, I enjoy you know, it. <laughs> uh, so like when Wayne said, let's do this show, the first thing I did was go on Wikipedia and read the article, which, um, was amusing to me. And I, I was something that I directly want to quote that is under a certain definition of ergodic literature, Finnegan's Wake, the phenomenology of spirit and being and nothingness are considered non-ergodic literature as they require only quote, trivial efforts to transverse the texts. Huh. Whereas mm -hmm. a stack of stained and moldering newspapers, on the other hand, is ergodic literature. And also, I just want to say it really bothers me that they've used on the other hand without saying on the one hand, but I, <laughs> no one wants me to edit Wikipedia articles on the air, probably, but there you have it. So it's, it's not just about like the difficulty of the text. I think it's about like, mm -hmm. like uh, I also, we can get into this later. Yeah. Like, well, like how you move through it. Sifting through the information and how you move through it. Yeah. Well, and, and here's some Wayne, uh, you mentioned comic books. In other mm -hmm. words, uh, when there are when there are decades and decades worth of backstory, does that make a a current comic book ergodic? Because you, in order to have a full appreciation, uh, you have to be somewhat familiar with decades and decades worth of backstory. And I mm -hmm. thought about that, and I thought, or is that just a function of serial storytelling? Right. Uh, and, and which and, is, and that's it. Yeah, I, I guess yeah. is is the and I'm sorry for interrupting. Um, I, I guess no, where my brain went is something that wasn't intended or as ergodic in its original conception, whether it's a book or or whatever. Does it become that over time, or does it become does the the consumer's interaction with it is is the consumer's interaction right. ergodic as opposed to the intent of the the thing itself? Can I add a well, it, question before we, before David? Because yeah. because yeah. um, I would also add, does it the way we've been phrasing it is for full engagement of the text, like for full enjoyment? Do you need to have full enjoyment in order for it to be ergodic? That is, no. You know, if you're if you're a person who just enjoys reading Absalom Absalom or 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 Tender Buttons or watching Twin Peaks, and you don't think about it beyond that, I don't think that makes them non ergodic. Right. I think right. it's I think it's more the possibility, the greater meaning that comes from the, you know, from the extra work. Like, like, I guess you could enjoy reading a choose your own adventure book straight through just flipping the pages. It would be mm -hmm. weird. You could do it. But I but so so I don't know that I feel like you have to engage yeah. in order to in order to watch Lost. I just well, think that you'll be bored by it if you don't. The, well, I thought of one graphic novel that is definitely ergodic. Mm. And it's Alan Moore's Black not Dossier. What, not what I thought you were going to say. <laughs> you, you have to put on 3D glasses. Yeah. And, and there, you're right. They're, they're, and you have no choice. In order to continue reading that text, you have to put on 3D glasses and continue reading it in a different way. Huh. Yeah. See, yeah. Not, 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 what I, not what I thought you were going to say. And, um, well, I know. I mean, you thought because it has all these other external references, right? Because in order to do it, you have to know who James Bond is. You have to know who all of the and certainly that is part of it, too. But in terms of just the physical act of reading, if that's a definition of ergodic, um, well, it is. Yeah, I'm a, it was just what I what I expected you to say. And I'm about to literally sacrifice my entire career as a comic scholar <laughs> on, air, on air by admitting because and I think Wayne knows what I'm going to mention uh, a graphic novel that I do not like and I believe Wayne doesn't either. Uh, Jimmy Corgan, smartest boy on earth. 
is what, that, 100% get, that, and I despise that book. My brain went to, instead of Jimmy Corrigan, Building Stories, which is, is um, Chris, oh, I don't know that. Yeah, Chris Ware. Thank God. You buy it, it comes in a big box. It's like 14 different books of different sizes. <laughs> and out of the stuff that comes in this box, you can build a house that is a representation of the house that takes place in these stories. And it's neat, I guess. <laughs> Which, do you have to, though? Do you have I, to do I, that? I don't know that you have to. That, that, that's a good question. I don't no, know. No, I think, I think that means I, that it does fit the category because yeah. I, I, part of it's about like how you choose to like interact with the text, right? Yeah, very much so. Mm, okay. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and Jimmy Corrigan is one of those things of I, I don't know if don't like it. I, I just don't engage with it. It just doesn't speak <laughs> to me at all. Like I can recognize the the skill of it and what he's trying to do, but boy, it just does not speak to me. It is a genius work of art that I do not have enough time for in my life. <laughs> I've, I've got a copy of it, and I, like I, I really feel like it's one of those things where I could spend the rest of my life being a scholar of just Jimmy Corrigan. Well, that and, was the woman who presented on that at PCAC a couple of years ago, and I, I think that's what she's done. Um, yeah, and I, <laughs> yeah, and you, and, and as a, I mean, even as a scholar, I mean, I was in the room. You go, yeah, I mean, uh, yeah. there's prob- probably something there, <laughs> but well, we, oh my god, it's so much work. Well, we we had a the one comment on the blog from Dr. Katya Vertis, V R T I S, um, and I think she she's addressing you know, some of what we're talking about here. She says, "I'm inclined to make an argument for ergodic approaches to text." So the process of searching oh. out, yes. Yeah, so the process of searching out information, stopping and reading intertextual references, reading back to trace foreshadowing, etc., are all ergodic approaches that result in deeper, more complex understanding, even with a text that merely requires page turning. Mm-hmm. Oh, I love that. And, and, and like, like, yeah, and I, I read that and went, oh, okay, I don't know that we need to do this episode now because that, that, that kind of sums <laughs> kind of it up. We've we resolved nothing. We're gonna, no, no. We're gonna uh, well, you know, I think that like uh, even just some, some revisions of texts have done this. Uh, I'm thinking about that Kickstarter that only I probably know about where they took Dracula, the novel, which if you haven't read Dracula, it's a um, epistolary novel that's made up of different forms, like journals, mm-hmm. letters, etc. And they took that and they turned it into separate documents, like the recordings they made into like vinyl recordings and they mm. made a journal. And so you can choose to go through the texts in whatever order you want and live Dracula as if you were like Nina Harker trying to assemble this all together and it would change how you really read the story. Um, I couldn't afford that Kickstarter, but I really wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I'm going to throw up something. I, David, were you still there? I, I did. I worked on one production at Pitt. I wasn't a student. Uh, I came into it as a, a stage manager. We put on a production of a play called The Grand Tarot, based on tarot cards. Were you still around when we did that? Oh, no, no. That doesn't sound familiar to me. Uh, the premise of it is there are there's a scene based on every one of the, the major arcana. But uh-huh. the, the conceit of the show is every night we would go out to the audience with the major arcana, have someone in the audience shuffle it. We would pin the cards up and that's the order you would do the play. So uh-huh. it, was, it was a different show every night, which made the stage managing a little crazy. Uh, and, 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 and the only people who saw the different show every night were those of us involved in it because no one came you know, every night of the, the production. Um, mm-hmm. but, but it, and, and when you, when you did, I mean, when you re- read the play, it's, and it's kind of all over the place. There isn't really, here's the specific narrative. It's a bunch of scenes that are loosely connected with those, those themes. But seeing the production two, three times, however many, it was a short run, however many times we saw it, it was truly a different show every night with the same cast and the same lines just presenting in a different order really mm-hmm. changed the way you receive this information. And there that okay. feels very ergodic mm-hmm. to me. Yes. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking about the mystery of Edwin Drood and how in that musical you the who is mm-hmm. the odd uh, villain is a different person every night because the audience votes. Um mm-hmm. so I, I'm actually surprised that we've gotten this far into the episode and we haven't talked about video or board games. I was waiting. Yeah, I was waiting. Yeah, was waiting around. <laughs> Katya not here, but just uh, in you know, um, she she wasn't able to make it tonight. But Katya would exactly point you know jump in here and say, mm-hmm. 
you know, any narrative where you have full control of the game um, for, you know, as a game studies person um, would qualify. And that's not every video game because some you're locked into a very specific course, you know, mm-hmm. but right. any time where an where open world can affect yeah, well, any open world or even any any semi open world where there's just a, you know, there's a game tree that you can affect, right? Like, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. where your decisions change the outcome. I mean, there are how many billion possibilities to a game of chess, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and actually Eric Heyo and Edward West um, have written style, strategy, and mimesis in ergodic literature in comparative literature studies talking about video games. Uh, and they actually begin with like Proust and talking about how beautiful it is. And then they are like, but what if we like think about games as ergodic literature? And they really emphasize the choice and how like, especially in things uh, like what, like one of their examples is Age of Kings and how they're, you know, there are different decision trees um, in how you like choose to play um, and how that affects your gameplay. It's really fascinating. Of course, I, I brought this up selfishly because I wanted to talk about Oregon Trail, but you don't have to. <laughs> <laughs> no, yeah, game, games are very definitely a part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, and and as as long as we're, I, I know there's a moment where I, I get to plug myself, but since we're on theater and games and cards, uh, uh, let me the project that I'm working on right now. I have a I write musicals, and my composer partner and I are conceiving of a musical um, called Illuminate, in which is twelve. Uh, let's see, it's twelve scenes, eight songs. Or the other way around. No, 24 scenes, 12 songs that can be done in any order. And we're printing the text on cards so that you don't get a script. You get a box of cards and some of the cards have lyrics and some have scenes and you can structure the show however you want. Uh, the end of every scene ends with someone walking through a door and the beginning of every scene begins with them coming through a door. So you literally can follow them through this and it has a story. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and, but our goal was to make an ergodic musical. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. um, but that sounds very much like what Wayne was saying about the tarot. I'm disappointed that we weren't the first to think of it, but I actually, I'm <laughs> glad that I'm glad that someone else is kind of, you know, yeah, trying and it I, out. And <laughs> I, I have no idea where you would find the show. I'm sure there are copies out there. I mean, this is something that, it, you know, did all the stuff to be able to produce. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Right. You know, so it's, it's not interesting out there someplace. Well, it's not necessary that the narrative trees, right? Like, uh, like there's no to take, no. take something like Watchmen again, that we, that we talked about or, um, or Twin Peaks, there's no branching. The story is the story. What makes it ergodic is the engagement of the consumer of the text, right? Mm-hmm. Like, like so. Um, right. one would argue. I think. I think. Uh, like Ben Hameen would argue, for instance, that all text is a is a uh, all text that we consume are a contract between the writer and the consumer of the text. Like meaning is created in my head as I read, which might or might not match the intent of whatever the author intended. Um, but I'm an active participant. But what I think we're talking about here is where I am an active participant beyond just passive thinking, right? Like when I normally right. watch a movie or listen to a song or read a book, I mostly am just sitting there doing the bare minimum to take the text in and then imagining what I'm told to imagine from the narrative, right? But what we're talking about is when I, as the consumer, am forced to do work in order for the true story to happen, right? Yes. Or, and is there, there's also an element too, though, of um, changing mediums. So uh, there's a book called, oh boy, I think it's called Night Film uh, that comes up a lot uh, when you, people talk about ergodic literature. And it's a mystery um, that is told th- uh, not just through text, but through uh, printed out web pages um, that are in the book, like as you mm-hmm. as you read them. So so it requires your brain to kind of change, change mediums um, uh, and and read with a, uh, the, the way you would perceive a website as opposed to the way. You, and then it goes back to a regular text. Well, and I, I was thinking just the whole I mean, 
the nature of the internet, the the way we pursue information there, you one we read one article and a link there takes us someplace else. There's something ergodic about right. that, that whole branching out and finding different information. But then I keep coming back to this whole how the consumer what the consumer brings to that experience. And I, I know oh, ten years ago probably, and this is the first time I was consciously aware of doing this. Uh, I was reading I and Mav, this is gonna surprise the hell out of you. I was reading a biography of David Bowie. <laughs> and in reading it, they would talk about this appearance on Top of the Pop where he did this, changed every- and I went to YouTube and watched that video. Mm-hmm. This this interview ah. this interview with so and so and I went and I watched that interview. Uh this particular song was an influence on him and I went and listened to the song. Uh, this photo of him caused, uh, so I was able to, while reading the book, jump on the internet and have immediate experience of these things that they were discussing. This interview, I was able to go read the interview, um, where, you know, 30 years ago, you read that and it's just this thing that you read and you don't have that experience. But, and I've done that with many things since then, but that was the first time I was really consciously aware of, oh, look at what I'm doing. I am, I am pursuing each of these things to enhance my enjoyment of the book, but also to enhance my understanding of what he's talking about. Well, and that very typifies the, um, that, that what you were talking about before about the ergodic approach to literature mm-hmm. in this case, the biography. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. And at that point, I mean, to answer the, the commenter, she said that it was an ergodic approach to the text. And one could argue you could do that with any text, right? Like how, yeah. how often have we um, as Pittsburghers watched one of the many movies that are filmed here and go and went, ah, Squirrel Hill Tunnel. Uh, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, David, were you were, were you in striking distance like a number of other people from that time period? Uh, of what? Of yeah, the uh, yeah, the the movie when it filmed here, striking distance is like oh, striking distance. Yeah. <laughs> the the title. I, yeah, because yeah. I yeah, because I know a, a lot of people from your era that we know were in that movie or cut out of that movie. <laughs> no, I was I was in between uh, Silence of the Lambs and Sudden Death. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> You know, so we are now as our approach to enjoying the film, we're doing what Wayne was just talking about. We're engaging with it on an ergodic level. It's not necessarily striking distance wasn't designed that way. Right. Like it's just <laughs> right, <laughs> right. <laughs> but like that's how I watch it because because I you know, I like watching that movie and going, How did he go in the Squirrel Hill tunnels and come out of the Liberty Tubes? That's amazing. Yeah. It's, you know, yeah. but that's part of that's part of the enjoyment of that film for anybody who lives in this city right mm. right right well and i um i, I think uh, um i don't want to backtrack uh too much but i uh you know wayne mentioned uh the songs that Zack snyder used the the nick cave songs and uh i was thinking about the uh his use of the song song to the siren which is a tim buckley song um, that was then covered by Elizabeth Frazier, who was one of the Cocteau twins. I don't know if you remember okay. the Cocteau. Yep. Oh, yeah. But um, so I looked into to to her and the Cocteau twins. And one thing that's always mystified me about them was that Frazier would stop singing intelligible lyrics to replace them. It was almost like she was speaking in tongues. She would start to mutate the words and the syllables to something that meant something to her, but listening to it, you don't know what it means. It has no, and I keep, and that made me think, so can pop music also be ergodic? Is there, is, I mean, it's something that listening to it takes, you know, has to be decoded, has to be, but, or is it even possible to decode that? Like, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. But it it, uh, it 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 made me think about whether or not whether or not music is is a form of of media or of art uh, that we could also apply this kind of ergodic definition to Squonk Opera, a Pittsburgh band mm-hmm. um, who is, uh, you know, might fall into the avant garde category, but uh, might qualify as ergodic. Not sure. Well, I mean, um, you know, the, the Beatles, Dan, the life or, you know, uh, come together. Uh, what, what does any of that mean? Um, right. So, so there's that sort of thing. Leonard Cohen has a, a great song called uh, Take This Walt that I fully believe are leftover couplets from everything else he'd written. <laughs> that just, that, 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 I love the song. Um, that they, but here are the lines that didn't fit anywhere else, and he just decided to throw them together and make a song out of it. 
Mm-hmm. And it, it's beautiful lyrics, but does the song mean anything? Probably not. Um, but yeah, I, and I don't know what that means. Interesting. Yeah. I wonder how much, you know, mediums just train us to perhaps they might not be ergodic in narrow definitions um, or in some people's view, but it just, you know, the I'm thinking about the history of the novel. And here is where Mav and Wayne side because they're like, oh, good. She's taking it back to the 18th century. Um, I like the novel. But I, I, I'm thinking like uh, I'm thinking of Tristram Shandy, um, which mm-hmm. for those who have not read Tristram Shandy, uh, it's a very interesting 18th century novel. Um, there, it's it's very interactive. There are there are marble cages. There's like a black cage. Uh, I will put it in the show notes. But guest on this show before. Um, Zoe Ekman has actually written about the visual textuality in Tristram Shandy. And mm-hmm. I, the actually the most memorable talk I've ever heard from a um, colleague was when I was visiting Duke and she talked about uh, how Tristram Shandy was related to an interactive ebook of Alice in Wonderland and how like interactivity mm. in the text works. And so um, Tristram Shandy, a lot of people have said, um, and really I'm, I'm thinking of, um, you know, like what Zoe has said, and I agree with her, and I think it's great. Um, a lot of people have, you know, said, oh, well, this novel is just like out of time. But she's she kind of asks us to think, well, what if it isn't out of time? Like, what are the things from Tristram Shandy that like the history of the novel and other forms of literature have like picked up and embedded since the 18th century? Mm-hmm. And I just find that really compelling and fascinating. And I think that that in some ways speaks to like part of the problem we have in deciding what's ergodic or not, even if we choose some of the narrowest definitions because of how interactivity works with Mm -hmm. literature. And by literature, I mean all of it. Broad sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Right, right. Does it matter? I mean, actually, I know how everybody on this show is going to answer. Well, except for David. But but um, but. (laughs) Because well, I, I don't know David, so does it matter? But I does it matter how much, or does it matter if it is a binary or not? Right? Do we have to decide for everybody? I think yeah. it's. I, I think there's like for me, it seems like trying to decide something is or isn't specifically ergodic seems like you know an exercise that makes as much sense as trying to decide whether or not something fits a particular genre right yeah and, and i right. and i agree with that i i really wanted to talk about this to increase my understanding of it but i i think mm-hmm. i think it's a new enough concept in general that it's still developing in terms of what it actually is and these conversations help that i yeah i i'm not locked into this is or this isn't it's trying to understand the approach from a storytelling so point of view as well as from a consumer point of view and i wonder if it it, it will be a matter of consensus in other words we we've it is still fairly new, and yet everyone seems to agree that the book House of Leaves right. is an ergodic book. So, so for me to say no, it's not an ergodic book doesn't really matter because, in general, it is. You know, if you go online, it's the first example that pops up. So, I wonder if at some point, what is ergodic will be determined by the examples that people cite <laughs> as opposed to I, I, coming up with a definition, you know? Yeah. I, I, and I think that that definitely happens. Uh, genres are created after the fact. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, and maybe, or like, it's, it's a weird thing because I mean, it's like, like Hannah said, what is interactivity, right? What is engagement is, um, even with the with the commenter Katya Virtus, mm-hmm. her point, which I actually I think I I'm, I'm pretty much 100 percent on board with her. You know, there's a there's it's an as an approach to intertextual reading. It makes a lot of sense. But I don't even know, like, I don't know how much I even have to be approaching something that way in order to consider myself ergodically reading. Right. Like, so. So Wayne, your point in the blog post was about the way we read comics, right? Like I I read the current run of X-Men, um, which is very much drawing on lots of stuff. Since the House of X crossover that Hickman did, like everything has been this weird master plan of calling on information 
and narratives over the last 60 odd years that he is mixing together and masterfully. And yes, I might enjoy it on a different level than someone who started reading the book a year ago, right? Like who's just sort of enjoying the story because the story is good in and of itself too, right? So, so there's that. But on the other hand, I don't know. I don't know how active it is. I don't know if it's just like, isn't that how I read everything? Like, don't I, you know, if I'm reading a non X-Men comic book, like if I'm reading something that's just a book, if I read uh, mm. my favorite book from last year that I mentioned was The Vanishing Half. The Vanishing Half has nothing to do with comic books, but I'm sh- but I'm still me. So whatever I've read over the last 46 years of my life is engaged in in my understanding of that text. On the other hand, there are some things uh, like Chris Ware's work, you know, with um, with um, Jimmy Corrigan, Smartest Boy on Earth, that where I am, I cannot read it with he's forcing me to engage. Right. Or I'm thinking um, we talked about Alan Moore, uh, his, his work on Promethea, where mm-hmm. he has um, he has a panel that I use when I'm teaching just sort of n- non-structural comics. He has a panel that is where they're walking around an infinity symbol and the narrative loops back in on itself and you have to turn the book physically in order to read it because everything's upside down. And that's part of the experience of reading the book, right? Um, or any, I don't know, any Tarantino thing where he where he tells the story out of time. WandaVision even, right? The, WandaVision, right. like the entire point of that TV show was we're starting you at a weird place in the story and you have to figure it out as you go along and we're inviting you to take notes. And if it's unclear that we're inviting you to take notes, we're going to pause on episode four and we're going to sit through and we're going to compare our notes with yours, right? Like that, that is, that is specifically engaging with the, with the viewer because that's what that episode was for. You know, we have brought in Kat Dennings and Randall Park to sit down and like have a conversation with you, the viewer. We'll even use a whiteboard, right? Like that, that's yeah. part of the story, right? So interesting yes so we're we're engaging when we're watching that right two of the examples i've thought of in my own life of comics reading and and once again this is where you come into something and how much knowledge you bring to it and how it changes your perspective um love and rockets which i've read almost from the beginning and Mm -hmm. and you've heard me say different times math as much as i love that series it's impossible to hand the latest issue or the latest graphic novel to anyone it's meaningless. Like these are people in my life that I've known for 40 years. I've grown with them. So I come to the new issues with this history. You know, I am reading them. I know who these people are. Whereas if you're coming into it as a new reader and you start at a random story arc in the middle, the way you read it, the, the way you're introduced to this stuff is going to be very different than the way I've read it. So you have a different understanding of the characters. So the other thing I'm reading that is like that is uh and i've probably mentioned on the show before i fell in love with the comic giant days by john allison um and i've now discovered that you know, this is a more recent thing of his but he's been doing web, web comics since like 1998 and it's all set in the same universe and i've been gradually tracking them down and reading i've read most of them now still not everything but boy have i not read them in the order that they came out in <laughs> so what I find myself doing is I'm reading older stuff that is introducing characters, younger versions of characters that I now know. So I'm coming in like I know who these people become. So I'm just I'm composing that history and that world in my head in a very different way than I did Love and Rockets, which was much more linear for me. Mm-hmm. Right. And I and I don't know if that is an ergodic approach because I'm not really I mean, I'm tracking down the other narratives, but it's not like I'm reading secret messages or, you know, whatever, but it just, I, one of the scripts is called bad machinery and it's, it's kids in middle school and there's the, the hip teacher, Ryan and his ultra hip wife, um, Amy. And I, I see them as adults in these kids life and whatever. And you go back and you read some of their stories and scary go around when they were 20 and they were both hot messes. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's interesting to go back and see, oh, these are the quote unquote respectable adults in the kids' lives and bad machinery. But wow, 10 years ago, they were really fucked up. <laughs> and, and it just so now I go back and reread bad machinery with a completely different sense of who these people are. And that adds a different resonance to what they say and do when I reread that stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the moment you set something down, set a, a work down and then decide that in order to continue enjoying the story, you need to go to a different source mm-hmm. and find out more information about the characters that are in the story. That that feels like an ergodic approach 
to me. One of the things that's fascinating with that is Giant Days is very much the story of three girls in college in Great Britain. And I mean, it's down to earth. It's fun. I describe it as more adult than Archie, less adult than Love and Rockets. And (laughs) but you start going into this world and characters who appear in Giant Days and there's time travel and aliens and monsters and all kinds of weird shit. Uh, One of the characters that appears in Giant Days is just an older friend who's been an influence on Esther, I've discovered, has died and come back to life three times. This isn't referenced in Giant Days at all. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And just kind of that that fascinating, like, here's this entire world of history and story that I didn't know the first time I read through Giant Days. But now I come back to it with that and just how it changes my my view of all of it. But I, I think you're right. You know, I was motivated to go back and read that stuff, which gives me. Well, and this a, makes me think, too, that like how how in the world and I've thought this, you know, I don't read a whole lot of contemporary comic books. I still I love comic books. I, I you know, I but I. I don't know. I no longer know how to read them. At some point, they 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 lost me. Um, so occasionally, I, I I will. But I I you know I'm happy we'll, to. Kind we'll of talk. I'll find I'll find you some comics. Okay, great. <laughs> good, good, good. Yeah, but at some point, like I go, you know, back to as far as the '80s, and you know, I I, I do that. But I am. Um, but I do sometimes think, you know, with all of the storylines, with all the, you know, how would one encapsulate? say the story of Spider-Man, just to name one of my favorites, how, how would one tell the Spider-Man story in a single volume? How, how would we get all of those things into a room to be able to tell the complete story? Because not only is it, you know, it's, it's, uh, you know, the, the, the 16 or 20 different comic books that Spider-Man has on his own, the crossover issues, the, um, the reboots, the renumberings, which ones count, which ones don't. Right, exactly. And how, you know, um, and I, I, I don't necessarily know what that has to do with <laughs> whether or not that's ergodic or not, but, <laughs> but there is something overwhelming about that that requires certainly effort on part of the consumer. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's a weird, but there's a weird answer to that question, right? Just because, because I know you arbitrarily pick Spider-Man, but the answer to your question of how do you tell the entire like life story of Spider-Man in one volume is you hand somebody Spider-Man life story, which, which is literally a book. <laughs> it's the name of it yeah. by Chip Zdarsky that attempts to tell the life story of Spider-Man um, as though he aged in real time from the 1960s as a teenager to the 20. 20- 20 you know, or 20 teens as an older man and it you know but doesn't it, that change everything doesn't it that does. and that's the interesting part about it right so like you could if i handed a if i handed someone who'd never heard of spider-man before i handed them that graphic novel i, I think it's six issues or something six like issues yeah yeah and then it's and it's condensed into a graphic novel if i if I hand that to someone and they read it straight through, they get a um, they get one cohesive narrative that that um, ranges 60 years from a from a kid being 16 to him being 76. Right. That's what that's what oh, they wow. get. But if I read it, I get to read a story where I get to play the game with Chip, right? With Chip Zdarsky of, oh, I see. He's pulling this from the from the 1960s and, oh, okay, well, this is clever. Um, Gwen Stacy comes into his life at this point and then she's got to be gone by this point because that's where she died in the comics and right. And then I have to, and I get to go, all right, all the characters are aging in real time. So obviously, um, obviously by the end of the story, He's got to get Reed Richards out of the way because Reed is older than Peter. So Reed's got to grow older faster and die before you get to introducing Miles. So how does that affect the how does that affect the narrative? And they age through the comics in real time. And the fun of it for me, I mean, the fun is also reading it. But part of the fun of it is to go through and and like sort of remember or if I have not read that story yet, reengage with, Okay, well, in this story, it says that. Flash Thompson died in Vietnam, but I know he didn't die in Vietnam in the comics. Why'd they make this decision? And they made this decision because in the comics, Flash Thompson went off to Vietnam. And like, so you can go through and you can, and you can, you can, I mean, that's that engaged storytelling where, um, like Wayne said, you know, when, oh, I'm looking up every, every aspect of David Bowie's life as I encounter it just to, you know, just to follow along that you could do that with this. So 
you can take either approach. You could take the, the casual approach or the ergodic approach to reading it. He's giving you the tools to do that, right? Well, and, and, you, and going back to Watchmen as an example, you know, like those of us who are comic scholars, that the whole, these, all the characters were based on Charlton Comics characters that DC had bought. Yeah. And, you know, you start adding that piece to it. And so there's this whole other level of meaning if you know that. Um, you, do you have to know that? Absolutely not. No. But, but well, when, once you start engaging on that level, or, once I mean, again, I, that, once well, again I say that's more ergodic in, in our approach mm-hmm. to analyzing it and experiencing it. Or just, I mean, as literary scholars for me and Hannah, I mean, and particularly for Hannah, since like she uses an older time period, part of reading the text that you read, Hannah, is understanding the cultural context. Yeah. Uh, like my cultural context is often the 20th century. And for much of it, I was there. Right. Right. Like, you know, no, or, or the 20th Engaging and actively engaging right. with the thing you're now studying. So if I'm and reading, if I'm if I'm reading Watchmen, I I you know, and it and it talks about Reagan era Cold War politics. I just remember it, you know. Like I, I mean, I can look right. stuff up too. Yeah. But like if you're if you're reading Dickens, you know, the research that's that's the job, right? Yeah, and I also like I think this is why I find games so interesting. Like like um, for those of you who've listened to the show before, you you know, I go on about games set in the 19th century. Um, it's just it's fascinating to me like well first you like to create the game you have to like research the world of the 19th century you have to decide like what perspective you're going to portray the game from and then you're going to have to think about the politics of the game and like what are you reinforcing um in your narrative um in that um article i pointed to um about video games they you know they they do talk about um how game designers quote encode cultural logics into their mm-hmm. games and and there's also i think in games in particular there is a sort of you know immersiveness that um is there and i, I think that in particular a game that is by the time this episode airs should have its uh kickstarter star john company thinks about the east india company and england in the 19th century and thinks about like what what you know what does it mean to think about these questions in a game in the 21st century and uh, yes so it, it, it like I, I think that like anytime you're playing, especially with like a historical time period, it seems like there 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 you know is a lot going on in your mind and thinking about like when you're a creator, like what are you hoping to reinforce or critique as well um, as just creating something. I don't I don't want to say fun um, necessarily because not all these things are fun, um, <laughs> but you know something there. Mm-hmm. That was probably a lot. So, so, so is our show is our show ergodic? Do people listen to it and then do research to understand us better? You know, you can move through our show in any order you want. It's true. You can, and and we have pretty extensive show notes on not every show to what we're talking about, but on many of them, we've gone out of our way to provide you know extra bibliographic resources to the random crap that we talk about. That's true. Um, so, yes. I think. Look, at, look at us being all ergodic. Yeah, well, I, I mean, I, but I think we are, right? I mean, necessarily so. Um, I mean, and that was by design. I mean, there's the beginning of the show where we talk about stuff like the box office game, right? Which is which is pretty linear because like there's a progression of time. But like most of our shows are very much designed to be talked about in random order because you know it's about you know what topic are what topic are you interested in mm-hmm. and yeah you're you not know, gonna probably not gonna listen to all of them yeah no you should you should <laughs> yeah, listen yeah, to all should. of them and yeah, give us should. a five-star review we are the best show on the internet it's, it's true. Very important. i think this episode i think this episode is ergodic because halfway through you have to put on 3d glasses <laughs> <laughs> So, oh, so, so my next question is based on on the autocorrect. Are we an ergonomic show? Oh, thanks. <laughs> I thought I thought we were going to get through the whole show without bringing that up. I just, oh just get just settle in and get comfortable. And the last two weeks of planning this show for the listeners this is intertextual information for you right here. The last two weeks of planning this show, we do a lot of our planning um over you know over chat rooms and texts and and stuff like this where we you know where we're working through through these issues with each other and the fact that no dictionary and on my cell phone or my laptop knows the word ergodic and just you know um, ergonomatic yeah ergonomic 
Air or, or Nomad? Like, or, or, or Ghost Numa come. <laughs> yeah, they're just it it is so it is so um annoying and I'll be happy to not have to deal with that anymore. Yeah. <laughs> they'll resolve nothing. Yeah. I like every show. Fun conversation. Like, I think Yeah, no, this was great. I really enjoyed this and it, it did help firm up a lot of what I wanted. It it did for me what I wanted the show to do. Mm-hmm. Which is we're helping Wayne write his next paper, I mean, basically. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Frankly, that's how that's how I use the show, you know. So, so, so I, I, feel like, I feel like I can post things that you all said on Facebook and sound smarter. No, we need to listen. Well, thank you, David, for indulging us. Yes. yes. <laughs> oh no, my that, gosh! No, this was for, a blast. Thank yes, you. Yeah, thanks for coming on. You, your, your insight into this was invaluable. You were mm-hmm. perfect guest for this. Oh, uh, thank you. If people want to learn more about you or hear you talk about other stuff, where would they find you? Uh, DavidLeeWhite.net or um, AlienateTheMusical.wordpress.com. And we will link those in the show notes so people don't have to remember them. And Palindrome Hannah. You can find me on FoxPopcast.com where I and the other co-hosts will post blogs about our upcoming shows. And you can leave us comments and help us decide what to talk about on air. Oh, useful. I'll have to subscribe to that website. <laughs> uh, you can mostly find me here where, uh, you know, home of the, the five-star review that you're all going to come on and, and, and give us based on this episode alone. Uh, oh my God. <laughs> please. Uh, I, 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 wait, I, hold on. Because please, more than ever, like dear listener, please someone write us a review that says five stars, Vox Popcast, home of the five star review. Just, please, I really, I want as I, many reviews that say that as possible. I really just want to like burst into song and sing, oh God, I need this review. Um, but I'll spare you. <laughs> Sorry, Wayne, I didn't mean to interrupt. Or no, I mean, I no, did, that, but, that's like, absolutely continue. fine. I, I wasn't going anywhere much further than that. Uh, so. <laughs> Oh, that would be so remarkable. <laughs> just like, uh, let's see. And you can follow me on Instagram or Facebook or Twitter, all of the places always at Chris Maverick. You can follow the show, all those same places at Vox Popcast. You can also follow the show on YouTube. Please subscribe to us on YouTube. We need more subscribers on our YouTube channel. It's always very fun. You get to see the stuff that we're talking about as you listen to it. And, you know, it's kind of an enhanced version of the show. You also, in addition to Vox Popcast, you get to see episodes of my other show oh gosh oh golly oh wow where you know i guess it's an erotic text we're doing a deep dive into into the comic excalibur that ran from 1988 till 1998 one issue at a time every week so those are both on our youtube channel so please subscribe to that like subscribe hit bells do all the youtube things and you know subscribe to us on itunes or stitcher or spotify or wherever the hell else you get podcasts from and you know this five-star review that Wayne already seriously just you know five five stars box podcast home of the five-star review I so want this please 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 um, <laughs> I would like to thank Mac Million of Thoughtform Music for our epic theme song feeling ever so more epically and playing us out I once again like to thank David for joining us I'd like to thank you at home for listening and we'll see you next time bye bye, bye.